Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here with Kieran and Marco from the Angry Workers Collective. Uh, how you guys doing today? Yeah, we're good. Yeah. In lockdown again. They just announced it. Another four weeks here in the UK. So oh, no. Plenty of time. It must be nice to be in a country that um, does things like that. <laughs> Somehow Bojo has exceeded uh, expectations here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're quite used to like U-turns. Yeah. But I think everyone was so scared of Christmas being cancelled that it was a kind of last-ditch attempt to, uh, to avoid it. Well, it's all very futile in the UK or in the United States um, as we enter into the winter, the winter of discontent. Yes. It's going to be quite the time. Oh boy. And uh, speaking of, we are recording on Sunday, November 1st. The episode will come out Wednesday, oh. November 4th. So we, are, we can be smug pre-election people, <laughs> and we can say that elections don't matter. All that matters is the class war, right. and we don't care about bourgeois democracy. And I'm sure in a week or two, we'll be doing uh, some election about defending bourgeois democracy <laughs> or something like that. But from now, we can be really smug. So sure. that's going to be the, that's our goal for the episode. Um, Smugness. Squad smug goals. workers of the world. That's right. Uh, yes. but, but in all seriousness, uh, this is a really valuable, we're going to be talking about the Angry Workers book, Class Power on Zero Hours, which came out this summer. And it's a really valuable resource um, for uh, for organizing, for organizing workers' inquiries, for organizing at, on your job, for um, building solidarity networks, for making a militant newspaper and being a militant in general. Um, you know, just stuff that's not expropriating the means of production. Yeah, right. and uh, a program for insurrection at the end. Yeah, the, when, when, when we talk about organizing in this sense, it's not organizing simply towards a trade union. Uh, it's not organizing simply towards uh, Labor UK winning. Uh, the Angry Workers book is great because it talks specifically about the limits you know, of those forms of organization and how we have to have, go beyond them and have a revolutionary class program. Hell Good yeah. stuff. It also, like, I, okay, I often feel a bit gaslit by people who say they are socialists or even communists when you talk about the nuts and bolts of revolution and, you know, the fact that we might have to take some shit over at some point and maybe defend it, maybe with violence, maybe just with, you know, shutting down just production. Just with smiles, just with our good looks. And uh, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, Jamie? You're crazy. Oh, my God. Like, um, how do you think we're going to get to socialism or communism. That's you called think the ruling class is just going to fucking uh, give it up willingly and be like, all right, it's your turn now. <laughs> well, just to, to bring it back to the uh, totally futile, inconsequential elections, um, I'll just read a quote from the intro of the book. Uh, we are publishing this book at a time when many on the left are looking their wounds, despondent at their missed opportunity to implement a socialist program through the Labor Party. The calls for a, quote, period of self-reflection about how to, quote, reconnect with the working class voters, however, has been largely sucked back towards the navel, as commentators and leftist groups at the start of 2020 now obsess over the labor leadership race. We're not sure when voting and elections became the only fodder for far-left debate. So maybe that can just serve as a way to uh, frame your project and the concept of your organization. And why don't, uh, with that, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it over to the angry workers and... Um, yeah, let us know about what the angry workers are and uh, and what you do. Yeah, why you know vote for Jezza? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so thanks for inviting us. Um, we are part of the Angry Workers Collective. Um, we chose to move to West London about six years ago. And part of that was because I guess we were fed up um, with the kind of so-called left um, and their obsession with Labour Party, um, obsession with kind of firefighting campaigns, uh, not really having a strategic focus. And, you know, coming from the kind of anti-authoritarian milieu like we do, any kind of, um, yeah, like talk about strategy or strategic focus is kind of like frowned upon a bit, like, oh, you're just some kind of 
Stalinist or Trotskyist or something who like wants to have a strategy. It's all a bit more kind of loose and um, yeah, like informal. And we kind of thought, okay, there's a lot going on. There's not very many of us. We need to focus on something that we think is important. So, you know, by moving to West London and, you know, trying out new things, we were kind of, you know, quite consciously making a break from this, you know, focus on political party and trade union focus, which, I mean, I guess is, you know, prevalent everywhere. But I mean, you know, particularly so, I think, in the UK. And yeah, this kind of entryist um, kind of strategy of, of lots of Trotskyist groups haven't, you know, also yielded any kind of particular massive benefits for people. And these are like mass organisations. So if you kind of think, oh, you know, we need to be involved in kind of mass organisation building or mass movement stuff. I mean, that has been happening. But in terms of benefiting the class, in terms of wage increases or better terms and conditions, better quality of life, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, I mean, that is just totally out of the window. So with the class contradictions, you know, becoming sharper, you know, we wanted to move move away from all of that, come to the fringes of West London, to an area that we found politically interesting and basically base our political work on the daily realities of, of working class life and as well as having a kind of political programme, which we'll, you know, we can talk about that um, later. There's, yeah, a, there's a quote yeah. that I really like that summed up some of what you were just saying from your recent uh, correspondence with Insurgent Notes. Uh-huh. Of the show. You said the idea of collectives themselves is dying. Working as a group with shared work and plans is seen as automatically limiting and Leninist. Labeling any kind of shared work or program as quote Trotskyist seems disabling in the current moment. And I really like that because I don't think calling yourself a Trotskyist or joining a Leninist cadre is a cool thing now for for people my age and younger. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to be learned from that kind of militancy. So this book, I really loved how it it t- tells you step by step, basically, how to have that kind of militancy as uh, Marx-inspired believers in working class political autonomy, which I, mm-hmm. I think is a, a much more unifying uh, concept these days than uh, Trotskyism or the Fourth International. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, before we get into the book itself, um, uh, what maybe we can just address it to the listeners and like, uh, you know, if, if you are a young communist or you are, you believe in working class autonomy to some degree, um, how, how did you get started and, um, what was, what were your, your immediate and long-term goals? Well, I mean, maybe we should say a bit more about West London as a strategical area. I mean, it's like, that's the logistical, let's say, um, entry point for London, Um, about 60% of all the food that is consumed in London is processed here or redistributed, uh, packaged. So it's, um, it's a massive area around the airport, which is, you know, Heathrow airport, biggest uh, airport in Europe. And a lot of warehousing and logistics are connected to that. So we've got about 200, 300,000, mainly manual workers, a lot of migrant workers, probably 90% migrant workers from Eastern Europe and South Asia. And um, there was yeah, not much of a, of a left milieu here. Some older comrades who were you know, left from the 70s when this was manufacturing area, like they built double-decker buses here and things, but um, that has changed. So the working class has changed with that. So for us, we had a longer discussion about logistics with comrades in, in Europe. We saw some strikes coming up in Italy of migrant workers in logistics. And we thought that um, to understand if in that reconcentration process, like bigger warehouses, uh, more connected international um, chains, you know, commodity chains, if, uh, yeah, there's also some collective power emerging. So we we were aware of the fact that individually the workers here are in a a weaker position because of their migrant status um, and, you know, so-called unskilled work. But uh, we thought collectively there's, you know, there's a power to be developed. So, um, yeah, we thought at the same time that there's no real 
um, let's say, blueprint of how to start organizing as communists. Um, we thought, you know, the on the economic struggle, you've got like the blueprint is to build a, you know, a rank and file union. Uh, on the political side, you know, you build your party or whatever. But we thought this kind of detachment and separation is part of the problem, which is particularly um, sharp here in the UK, uh, has always been. I mean, Marx and Lenin were complaining about how separate here the economic and political struggle is. So we thought, okay, um, in order to discuss, you know, different society, a different uh, vision of, of a world, workers only do that if they're somehow connected to a collective power that they have um, where they are, you know, as, as producers. Um, and so we have to develop both. So for us, it was an experiment. What can you do as a very small group um, within, you know, a four or five years period? And uh, we can talk through that. But it was an experiment as much as, you know, a, a strategy. I mean, for us, it was really like, okay, we have to start from scratch. Um, let's try it in an area that seems interesting to us. I mean, there was also a sense of kind of taking responsibility for a, for a particular area as well. So even though I think quite a lot of people want to just kind of stick us in the like kind of workerist category, like kind of grubby workerists, um, you know, we wanted to build a, a local network, I guess, of militant workers, um, work colleagues, people that were able to kind of support each other, both at work and outside work. So, you know, we got jobs in workplaces, we did all that stuff. Um, we had the solidarity network um, to try and link the workplace and outside the workplace. Um, we had the newspaper to kind of share those experiences um, amongst workers in the area. So, you know, we, we tried a lot of different things, but the idea was to kind of uh, get a group together where we could kind of support each other and not necessarily... Uh, rely on yeah like the media to sort out our problems for us or or legal mm. professionals or you know that someone was going to swoop in and save us like that's mm. you know that's not going to happen yeah i mean i think we just try to describe it in the book that there are kind of four layers of organization that we thought uh, are often seen as you know separate but we thought we need a kind of dynamic between these layers. And, you know, we started with the solidarity network and knowing that there are a lot of workers who have individual kind of problems, you know, with, uh, you know, with temp agencies that don't pay their wages, with the landlords, uh, with the job centers. And um, that solidarity network, I mean, first of all, it opened um, doors to, you know, the reality of the local workers here. So we found out a lot about, the you know the day-to-day -day problems um we i think the main insight was how class stratified the so-called migrant community is with people who have you know arrived here from india or punjab mainly uh in the 70s 60s 70s and who have developed a kind of you know um let's say petty bourgeois layer of you know managers landlords local politicians religious leaders and a lot of the solidarity network cases that we had were with workers who arrived recently from India and who were exploited by uh, smaller bosses from their so-called community. So um, that was one insight where I've, I thought like a lot of the left here uses the idea of migrant community as something that is somehow fixed that you can address, whose representatives you can work with. But we thought this is really a dicey kind of uh, view on things. That was one element of the solidarity network, but um, having had quite a bit of discussions with guys in, in the US about the pitfalls of solidarity networks, that it, it's uh, individual cases, uh, one by one kind of cases, we thought we have to really strategically link the solidarity network with workplace power. So we did that in various ways. I mean, one thing was we um, we always ask guys like, okay, where are you working now? What's happening there? Even if it was mainly to get the money from the previous job. Um, we encourage them to think about, you know, what is 
collective power beyond, you know, standing in front of your old workplace. Um, so I think the most successful um, kind of actions were when we got the trust of some of, you know, Punjabi truck drivers from smaller companies and they uh, got, got involved and helped us, you know, organizing at a sandwich factory uh, because there were Punjabi women there they could translate to and talk about. And the fact that they saw us not as middlemen um, who are interested in, in money or in building, you know, an abstract organization, but as, as yeah, fellow workers. And these uh, Punjabi truck drivers, they had connections to uh, truck drivers in the second biggest airline caterer uh, globally, that is uh, LSG, Alpha LSG. It's, you know, you've got them in the US, you've got them basically everywhere. And these kind of small actions in, in, in let's say, smaller transport companies opened the door to workers and a workers group in this uh, multinational corporation. So that showed the, let's say, the capacity or the potential of the Solidarity Network. Um, yeah, the other thing I would say about the Solidarity Network is, like, it was also used as a way to build a group of local people that would be able to support struggles if and when they happened in a particular workplace. So like when we um, uh, went to Italy to visit Cicobas, which is this rank and file union there who were organizing warehouse workers. Well, the experience was that initially uh, it's mainly a minority that starts a struggle. Yeah, yeah. So there's a minority that will start a struggle. And whenever Cicobas got like two or three people that would come to them saying, oh, you know, we want to do something, they were like, okay, yeah, go on strike and we'll bring 50, 100 people to the gates to support you. Um, and that worked really well. And it gave confidence to the people in the other workers inside who hadn't yet got involved and um, that there were people outside willing to, to, to support them. And that was possible in Italy because you had these huge social centres, squats, you had a big scene and they, you know, put aside the kind of sectarian differences and like all went to go and support the warehouse workers. Whereas in West London, where we are, it's like nobody even knew where we were, you know, like it's on the tube map. But, you know, people are like, oh, where are you living? No, no clue that it even existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of group that could support workers and give them confidence from the inside, you know, just wasn't there. So on the level of having to start from scratch, the Solidarity Network, you know, was a, a local group of people that could fulfill that role. Yeah. Hell yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, so I, I wish we had more time. I could talk to you guys all day from what I've heard so far. But um, moving into our next section, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, what is the workers' inquiry? Um, can you maybe describe the workers' inquiries that you have in your book a little bit? Yeah, I think we maybe start a bit more general about workers' inquiring, how we understand it. I mean, I think um, a lot on the left, as we kind of mentioned before, as I've got like a view that, you know, the workplace is economic struggle and then, you know, outside of the workplace, you've got like, you know, wider political questions. And, um, yeah, I think workers' inquiry is first of all, um, an attempt or an effort to see the political side of, of the production process and the experience that workers have, um, as, as producers as something that is political. So what does that mean? I mean, in, in that sense, the cooperation of workers is normally divided politically. I mean, that's a, a lesson that capital had in the 1920s to up to the 1970s, that if too many workers cooperate closely, which is necessary to increase productivity in things, uh, you've got the big kind of factory setups, that creates political problems, which is who has got control over the production process. So workers would question the political power of management uh, they might even question, you know, how society is, is run if they see that basically, you know, the the production process is something in our hands. So in reaction to that, you know, through the 70s, 80s, uh, there was like a, a more and more political divisions uh, within, you know, outsourcing, uh, privatization. So the production process got uh, segmented. And... Uh, 
I think the focus of workers' inquiry is um, to show that contradiction um, or to explore it with your fellow workers, that on one hand, capital has to bring us together and uh, cooperate very uh, closely in order to make a smooth work process. On the other hand, uh, they have to keep the knowledge uh, of collectivity you know, from us. So we are only given certain information, others are given to the other department, whether they do admin or you know, certain parts of the production process are outsourced. And these kind of things are not just economic questions, these are political ones. So that's more or less the starting point of, of what we think about workers' inquiries, not just sociological in the sense like, okay, where do these workers come from? How is the company structured? Um, nor is it just for organizing in the sense like a tool or something that you think, okay, in order to be successful in organizing, you have to know about uh, you know, workers' backgrounds. It's more a process of discovery. So our starting point was always there is no fixed organizational model. Um, what we have to instill uh, in, in our in our daily work with our co-workers is that we have to undertake the analysis. We have to see what can we do if it's three of us, what can we do in our department, what can we do on a company level, what is our strategic kind of, uh, let's say, the bottlenecks of production, and also how is the union structured, what can we use in this union, and where will the law or also the bureaucratic nature of the union um, put a limit to our struggles. So that is a, it's kind of a political process. It's kind of, you know, the idea that we have to analyze the, the bigger picture beyond our workplace and uh, choose our kind of weapons or the way that we struggle against the boss accordingly. So we can't leave that to anyone else. That's roughly the starting point. And we had, yeah, in the book, there are three major inquiries. But Yeah, I would just kind of add one more point, yeah. which is, like this element of um, workers' inquiry not being sociological. Um, you know, we can analyse and we can use all the information that we get from, like, working on the job and from talking to workers and stuff. But, like, the other element is, like, how do you feed that back to workers so they can discuss those things amongst themselves and use that knowledge, which is their own knowledge, um, to basically... Um, build confidence amongst each other and try and come together and, and improve their situation. So, um, you know, when we're, when we start a job, like for the first three months, you know, we like talk to everyone. Um, I mean, what you would do if you started any job, I guess, and you wanted to like meet as many people as you could and like settle in. But, um, yeah, use, use that information, write it down, think about it, but then, put that back into the factory somehow. So we try to do that by, um, you know, leaflets, but very kind of specific leaflets um, and very targeted to either specific departments or to that particular workplace about the, the common conditions um, that they all faced and stuff that they were discussing amongst themselves. And the idea was that that would be a kind of mirror, I guess, for them to, um, well, for all of us to kind of discuss together about what we can do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that kind of element of how do you feedback, I mean, it's open and that's kind of open to experimentation, but I think it's quite an important um, element to workers' inquiry. Food yeah. production and uh, distribution is, a, is a, um, a major source of your worker inquiries. Uh, tell us a bit about why food, why food distribution? Mm. Well, I think mainly because the area that we're living in, there's just so many like food related workplaces. So like, you know, Marco was working in a big supermarket um, distribution center as a, as a delivery driver. Um, I was working in a food manufacturing plant. So it made all the ready meals and 80% of the UK's hummus, um, you know, and supplied all the major supermarkets. Um Another guy worked, um, another comrade of ours worked in um, another food manufacturing place, you know, picking, we've been picking things for supermarkets. Anyway, it's like, it was quite a big thing here. So I guess that's why, you know, a lot of the book is dedicated to that. 
Would the UK yeah. survive a hummus general strike? If the hummus <laughs> ran out, yeah. how long would the UK? The Guardian went nuts after like one day. Like the middle class were, you know, we were just up in arms. It didn't take long. Yeah, I mean, there's there's one as a local reason. Yeah, food food uh, processing is is big here, uh, and it is. Um, Kind of connected globally. I mean, a lot of the food, um, fruit and vegetables actually come in passenger machines, which was interesting because with the lockdown, obviously there was less tourist machines or like passenger machines going in and out. And that created a problem for them because usually they use that in order to, you know, bring in uh, fruits from uh, overseas. So that that is something that, you know, normally it's not talked about. We can talk about the the wider kind of question of essential or key sectors and uh, what kind of role they play in a social transformation maybe later. Um, maybe to the three um, inquiries of the book, what were the main, I mean, what were the main things to take away from them? I think if I start with my job at that supermarket distribution um, warehouse, one thing was the experience of, you know, trying things outside and inside the union. But I think uh, Kieran's experience was more interesting in that regard. Um, I think one was to understand how, you know, supermarkets like Walmart or Tesco are structured, that they're not just kind of service or retail companies, which is how the left normally portrays them, then can say we live in a service society but they're very deeply involved in the productive fabric. So Tesco has got thousands of suppliers like farms, uh, greenhouses, uh, dairy farms, um, any kind of food uh, production like Unilever or these kind of big companies. And they are involved in the production process in the sense to quality management, sometimes investment for smaller uh, companies. Um, so they are, they have, you know, a, restructuring side uh, and position inside the inside manufacturing really so they're not just a service or retail company um, they also own a lot of land and are intertwined with real estate um, they they build like modern cold chain logistics centers um, which is again not service but you know without these things uh, a product wouldn't kind of um, arrive at the consumer. So it's definitely part of the somehow productive circuit. That and, I, was, and I guess you were kind of making that point, Marco, weren't you? Because the whole um, notion from the left is like, oh, that's just retail and that's service right. economy. So, you know, we, we're not living in a manufacturing age anymore. It's all about service economy. But actually, if you kind of dig deeper and see like all the tentacles of this kind of retail outlet, you mm. see it's like a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, that, that was definitely one thing I, I learned during the three years or three and a half. Um, the other thing is that this was actually a distribution center of, of workers and workers' experiences as well. So it's about 1,300, 1,400 workers with a high turnover. Um, that would mean that um, you get to know a lot of workers from mainly Asia, um, Afro-Jamaican, Caribbean workers, uh, Eastern European, uh, who had worked in the area. So uh, we met people who took part in the Gate Gourmet strike, which was a big strike at the airport in the early 2000s. Um, so you also, once you're in touch uh, with workmates and they leave and you stay in touch, that allows you or allowed, you know, our, our group to have then contacts at the airport. Uh, so a lot of the dis, uh, delivery drivers shifted to uh, work at British Airways on the run field as truck drivers or, um, yeah, got jobs in, you know, uh, manufacturing in the area. So it was, in that sense, it helped to... Yeah, get get contacts and experiences in 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 the area. Like, yeah, I mean, the other uh, inquiry in the in the book is about a three D printer plant, and uh, I thought it was interesting in the sense three D printing is seen as like the alternative to mass production. Yeah, I mean, three uh, D printing is going to save capitalism, right? Because we won't need capitalists yeah, anymore. Not. You can just 
you can just make parts with the 3D printer and then you can make the 3D printers with 3D printers. So yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, that's fully so, automated luxury communism to me. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, there's a, a proponent of, of that here in the UK left of luxury communism. I think then you actually look at the, the way that, you know, also the material side, the limits of, you know, 3D production, 3D printer um, production, what was like, yeah, it was interesting to see how, you know, um, the technology is actually not that. The reality compared to the yeah, hype. You know, and... Um, you just spoke a German word. Oh, sorry. That's, <laughs> That's acceptable on this podcast. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, I think on one side, the yeah, the technological limits of that, um, but also the company was like, it would have fitted very neatly in the new labor, not new labor, the democratic socialist side of labor who had an idea that uh, if the workers link up with, let's say, the more progressive side of startup companies, um, that could be a united front, front against bigger corporation monopolies and the finance sector. So the idea was that um, if, for example, uh, through a government reform um, the finance capital would be split in, you know, um, finance capital that provides cheap credit to, you know, these young startups. Um, that and that would kind of basically strengthen the the labor movement because, yeah, with the intelligence and the creativity of these startups, uh, it, it would contribute to the, you know, to the wider movement. So if this company was like a prime example. I mean, they were engaging in recycling of um, printer cartridges, so they were green. It was a startup, but it was based mainly on um, minimum wages um, and, yeah, women workers from mainly Gujarat. So I think that's the other aspect of that experience to to look behind, you know, the this kind of progressive small companies startup kind of hype and see the labor behind it. But I think the main experience is uh, yeah, Kieran's experience in the food factory. In the food factory, yeah. Yeah, so that's the, um, the kind of longest workers um, inquiry in the book, and so I was working there for about four and a half years, and yeah, in total, probably about like four or five comrades like passed through um, and worked in different um, departments and factories. The company owned like three factories in a warehouse in this one particular area and yeah I mean it goes into detail about kind of what kind of company company it is how it sits amongst other similar companies where it's placed in terms of UK and international food production supply chains worker composition technical composition how the work is organized blah 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 but the main part was um, about what we tried to do there is militant in the workplace. Um, so it kind of goes very step by step, like, oh, this is a new workplace. Um, what do we what do we know? What can we do? Um, and are there any groups of workers that are similarly minded who are, might already be there? You know, like, how do we get in touch with them? So we didn't kind of, you know, think arrogantly, oh, we're kind of bringing something to the workers. Um this is a big workplace. There's obviously a lot of stuff going on. Um, could we draw anybody out? Um, so that's why we started with leaflets about the specific conditions. Um, and then we also kind of go into detail about what we tried to do in specific departments. So like kind of smaller collective actions and all the kind of problems of how to do that. I mean, a lot of the kind of syndicalist organizing examples tend to be really small um, in like very small workplaces. And this was a work, uh, workplace with like, well, there's about 800 people in my factory, but in that area of the three factories in one warehouse, it was like almost 4,000 workers. So, you know, doing one-to-ones with like all your co-workers, I mean, it's just, it's not going to work. Um, it's a totally kind of different situation if you're working in like a coffee shop or a small restaurant or something. So, you know, it was an experiment, but we kind of document, um, I think, quite well and self-critically um, what we tried to do, what the kind of subjective and objective barriers were. And then when we went into the unions um, and I became a union rep there, what it was like 
to, you know, to try and push things, you know, working within an organization that, you know, um, is not going to be revolutionary at the same time, it might open up some spaces. And it did like it, we managed to do this one pound pay campaign, which we wouldn't have been able to do if we were on the outside. But obviously, you know, we had no illusions um, about the union. And yeah, it quite, it kind of clearly showed what the problems are of organising within the union framework. At the same time, we didn't say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that um, because every workplace is different. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just the, the basic fact of, you know, workers can't struggle if they can't survive, right? Just the, the possibility of winning some small improvements for people's lives, I imagine, have got to strengthen um, the working class movement and the struggle somewhat, right? Yeah. I mean, in this kind of hostile environment, I don't know whether you guys know in the US is like kind of concerted UK policy to try and make the environment as hostile as possible as possible for um, for migrants. And you could really see how this kind of state level um, policy direction was really affecting like what workers thought they were able to do and what they actually could do. Um, so this is where the kind of political and economic kind of meet. And, you know, if you want to bring over your spouse you have to earn like a minimum of eighteen thousand six hundred pound a year and if you work the full 40 hours on the pay in my food factory you wouldn't have got that so that's why there's mad overtime people were trying to you know fighting each other for as much overtime they could get because that's how they would reach the threshold and when you have that kind of competition and desperation amongst the workforce i mean that is a big objective barrier to like workers coming together i mean obviously it's not impossible but it just makes the um you know if workers did something it would be coming up against a lot more than just your boss you know yeah Yeah, word so um i really like the way um you take us through these different kinds of union unionism because you know it's easy to sit there in your armchair and say why uh, traditional trade unions are not so great either for, you know, short-term material benefits or long-term revolutionary potential. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, well, syndicalist unions are lame because blah, blah, blah. But you actually did this shit. So, um, and and you developed a critique of both of them and proposed an alternative kind of unionism called class unionism. Um, You say that syndicalist unions fall short because they sometimes agree to push workers' demands, even if they're bad for class unity, um, using the examples of uh, hierarchical pay scales, restrictions on new hires, um, which sometimes comes down to protectionism against immigrants, etc., the normal trade unions. I feel like everyone listening to our show is familiar with the critiques there. Um, yes, I have gone off in the past. <laughs> so uh, a class union, in contrast, is uh, it's totally self-organized and fights the bosses only in ways that unify the class, not in any way that disunifies the class. But And, and that sounds really good, um, and it's something that we should be shooting for. However, um, if a class union is organized by those same workers who are pushing uh, disunifying demands in a syndicalist union. Um, how, how do you make sure that that class line holds? What, what is the, the pitfalls of trade unionism? If we look at, for example, the UK in the 70s, I mean, that was the height of trade union power. You had like uh, shop stewards networks, you had like uh, workers actually had, you know, no one would work more than two hours on a night shift. Uh, there was a lot of talk of workers' control and things, and you had the labor government. So, uh, and it, it came to an impasse that could only be or was solved by a, a, a kind of very planned political attack. I mean, that was like late 70s, early 80s, uh, Thatcherism. So, despite a very you know developed trade union movement, uh, without a political vision of actually, you know, questioning the power of state and uh, of of capital uh, beyond the, the individual workplace, um, this union power through various, not like in one go, but through various struggles around, you know, from miners, dockers, printers, uh, could be, you know, could be beaten. And uh, the strikes themselves kind of... Uh, 
came to to a limit where you know it was mainly also working class people who you know then suffered from you know um, services not not met like so, uh, public sector strikes and these kind of things. So even the working class got a bit fed up with their own trade union power, so to speak. So that may be a, historically, but um, in our day to day let's say experiences with comrades, uh, for example, our comrades in Poland, um, uh, Workers' Initiative, which is the rank and file union, uh, one of the few that actually managed to organize at Amazon, even mainstream union normally, you know, uh, don't manage to do that. Um, so it is, we, we, we hang out with them, we really kind of appreciate their work. Um, but it also showed um, the problems if you start from the point of view, okay, it's our members uh, who decide about, for example, demands, uh, because they're initially their members were mainly um, kind of workers who have been long time at Amazon. They they brought the demand that if you work there long uh, long enough, you get seniority pay. So you're in a pickle there. On one hand, uh, it's a democratic workers-led union, but the demand that these workers uh, raise uh, in the long or, or even medium term uh, will counteract workers' unity. So you will have workers on higher pay doing the same job. So what do you do there? You know, how can you have a, a kind of a union demand that uh, comes more from a wider class perspective? Um, we, we can look at other examples, Sikovas. It was very difficult with them to talk about, um, let's say, what are your the weak points? You organize in warehouses, uh, you say you win, but you also had, uh, let's say, defeats. What are the objective conditions for victory or defeat? But because uh, there is an organizational dynamic where you know these unions have to show that they're victorious permanently, um, that hinders self-reflection of workers. So you find that there's a um, separation between the interests of the organization, maybe in benefit of workers, but mainly to portray themselves as victorious and a wider class interest in self-critical reflection. So, you know, other workers want to learn under what conditions they can win and under what conditions they lose. So these were examples uh, where we thought, okay, this is a structural problem of, uh, let's say, syndicalism to a certain degree. Um, we were in the IWW ourselves, and uh, we thought that, and you might have the same problem in the uh, U.S., that the IWW tried to be too many things. So they also tried to be a political organization that has a position, for example, we support the independence of Catalonia. And we thought as, you know, uh, communists that uh, this is not really something in the wider class interest uh, to kind of support like regionalism or, you know, uh, national liberation. Uh, also, it would hinder union work if you, you know, work with uh, Spanish workers who are, you know, love the monarchy or something, you should still organize with them uh, on the level of class solidarity. So we said, you know, class unionism is a very, it's a kind of defensive, it's not a revolutionary organization, it's a defensive organization that uh, acknowledges the fact that workers um, often have to struggle within the labor law in order to be able to have a legal strike. But that organization should be, you know, in the hand of workers as a legal vehicle, and it should raise uh, only demands or uh, propose forms of struggle that don't counteract workers' unity or um, a, a class unity in, in the medium term. So I gave some examples where that might, um, you know, where syndicalist unions kind of, yeah, out of a democratic nature, uh, would would raise demands that that would counteract that. So then, obviously, the question uh, arises: uh, How can you have an organization as mainly an uh, organization of economic self-defense, and at the same time have a political consciousness that uh, analyzes certain demands and sees are they contravening uh, or counteracting unity? That means that yeah, you need a, a, a political you know element in this but an element that is not saying, okay, this union is just a recruiting ground. So you have there a kind of, yeah, a certain contradiction uh, uh, between, um, let's say, a political organized core and a, a wider, you know, organizational workers. And for us, it was always like there is no, you know, one model that fits all. 
uh, it is a process. Each economic struggle has for political elements, and we want to build in, in our locality an organization that, yeah, managed to raise uh, the political issues in, in the day-to-day struggle. So we are interested in, you know, what workers have to say about the society. And um, that would lead us to the question, for example, of, you know, the other layers of organization, for example, the newspaper, where we try to, you know, um, relate to the fact that more and more workers talk about the system. I mean, often in terms of uh, conspiracy theories and, you know, oh, they killed Gaddafi as soon as he didn't want the dollar and things, uh, which is really widespread amongst the workers here who come from, let's say, former colonial um, or, or colonies, so to speak, yeah? So um, we wanted to address the question, you know, what is the system and uh, have a debate um, in, in our newspaper uh, that combines reports about day-to-day struggle uh, with, yeah, a question of where is this system coming from historically? Where is it going? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, um, that all makes a lot of sense. Like, what can people do like maybe there are some workers in this uh class union model who uh have a more uh, advanced idea of how what demands are good what demands unify the class and which ones disunify it like how uh how do they enforce that class line do they just have to convince everybody else um yeah i mean yeah i think uh i think in the end you can't have a political organization that has got separate material means to enforce its line. I mean, either through collaborating with the state or by developing financial or other kind of resources. I think in the end it is uh, a political battle, um, and yeah, you can't you, you can't enforce it uh, other than uh, through yeah having an influence. And I think that was our attempt. We wanted to. And I think that that somehow worked as well. We wanted to show that um, we we propose a self-organization in the day-to-day struggle where it's workers who lead it, um, where it is about actual analysis and not like populism in the sense of, yeah, the bosses are bad and we are good, but really like, okay, how are the bosses organized and how are we organized? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? And by introducing that kind of, you know, model of analysis also, you know, get a certain reputation, you know, as people who, you know, support without a self-interest. We're not like an organization that wants to sell anything. But at the same time, we also have, you know, wider political ideas. And I think you have to build up, you know, a certain, you know, Let's talk about an individual level. I mean, Kieran worked there three, four years. I worked there three years. At the end, also as individuals, because, you know, we we supported in the day-to-day struggle, people would listen to us differently when we talked about, you know, our wider political ideas. And um, I think that is, you know, true on the individual level and also for organizations. Word. So you mentioned national liberation a minute ago, and... Um, I'm really wondering um, how you think the left should relate to identity-based struggles that workers um, and the increasing ranks of the unemployed are currently engaged in. Um, Because we know that large swaths of the working class experience oppression and consequently form their politics along lines of uh, race and nationality, especially when they've been colonized. And we just saw the biggest uprising in U.S. history, which was oriented uh, primarily around the plight of the black working class of this country. So how does this fight against uh, racial or colonial oppression fit into the struggle against capitalism in your view? I mean, I think the situation in the U.S. and and U.K. in terms of um, racism and class is quite different, like historically. I think the the U.S. situation has got... um, yeah, I mean, just like a whole different um, material base in terms of class divisions. I mean, here, the, the problem is that obviously the, the state uses migration laws in order to, you know, allow the bosses to blackmail workers. Um, we had the problem with racism uh, of Eastern European workers who didn't have much um 
let's say, to do with, uh, let's say, non-white workers in their home countries. They come here and uh, they end up in a situation where, um, let's say, maybe their racial prejudices towards, for example, uh, Asian workers mix also with uh, the fact that a lot of um, the local petty bourgeoisie is Asian. So you had like a lot of middle managers, um, kind of uh, bosses, shop owners who are Asian. So you have a weird mixture of, you know, racism and uh, hatred of small bosses, which is difficult to disentangle. So in the end, we kind of, because there's so much... um, let's say that the bosses use different language groups uh, to play them off against each other. We, in general, emphasize, um, you know, that we have a common interest as workers. Um, the U.S., I mean, that might be um, an even more difficult situation where, yeah, you have um, an uprising that starts from, you know, the question of uh, racist police violence. Um, but it's also like, um, mainly formed by inner city poverty, which is not the whole black experience. Um, so you've got um, a middle black middle class that somehow needs this kind of idea that you know um, police violence is, is mainly racist and is mainly targeting uh, black impoverished people people in order to um, justify their own um, you know position as as representatives so what do you do in that situation if you see that a lot of problems are um not just a problem of black people i mean there are a lot of other people who get shot by the police which is then not seen as political um which is also because a lot of uh, let's say white working class people would think okay if we make a, a political issue of it we probably get you know lumped in with uh, you know these inner city pros, you know who are rebellious, and we don't want to be seen like that. So it's I, I, I don't. It's kind of we we should have a yeah discussion about yeah. For us, we try to uh, ask a lot of questions to U.S. comrades about the composition of the movement, but it was really difficult to get uh, answers. You know, it was like um, it yeah. It's tough. I I'm I'm thinking about the observation you had in the book. Uh, where you talked about trying to break the separation, uh, which is couched in in terms like community, between the most impoverished sectors of the working class and the middle class itself, with the more advanced uh, uh, fractions of the working class in the middle. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that means? Well, I mean, one kind of example comes to mind which is in, in my workplace where there was that was like a really massive problem because it was mainly um a Gujarati workforce with a, a minority of um, Tamil workers and Eastern European workers and the union was basically controlled by the by some Gujaratis and they'd been in that position for a very long time they weren't going anywhere you know they were like their feet were firmly under the table and they didn't like anyone coming and kind of questioning uh, their position or their strategy or or anything at all. Um, So there was this kind of quite complex relationship between the Gujarati union members and the union uh, kind of reps and officials um, who were also Gujarati and there was a level of kind of trust because you can kind of speak their language at the same time. Workers knew how totally crap they were and inept at their job. So there was also a lack of trust, but this dependency um, was there because, you know, they couldn't speak English very well and they needed them to accompany them to meetings and and, and so on. Um, When the new union official came, uh, started the job in my factory, he called a meeting and was really kind of fire and brimstone and talking of wanting to try and rile workers up and his strategy was to um basically use this uh, notion of racism um to like make workers feel very pissed off which of course they already were but it was really kind of trigger point um he he stood up there and he was like yeah the managers are treating you like shit because they're racist And everyone was really could really get behind this idea, right? Like, yeah, yeah, they're racist. Why are they treating us like this? But 
I just, it made me feel really uncomfortable, you know? It's like, well, they're not, they're not treating you like that because you're brown. They're treating you like that because you're on at the absolute lowest rungs of the labour market mm-hmm. and you don't speak any English and you feel like you can't get another job because, you know, it's too much of a, you know, you're kind of settled there and you know what's what. And, you know, there was a lot of other issues, but I mean, to kind of... This was just an easy win somehow, you know, to just be on the offensive and go, yeah, this is a kind of racist question. So examples like that made, I think, made us a bit wary of kind of, yeah, mm. you know, talking or like folk, like fixating on the on the racing. I mean, obviously, like racism happens, um, you know, it's, it, it happens to me, but it's like, okay, we were all somehow grappling with this. Yeah, I mean, the question is like, can you fight racism with anti-racism in the sense of, you know, you focus on the uh, racism element or is it more like, okay, you try to, you know, um, show that in, in in the long run also, you know, the working class doesn't really have to win or anything to win from racism. Often uh, those people who have a, a, a privilege in a situation uh, and can feel better because whatever they're, they're white enough, you know, uh, slightly better job chances. Uh, through your class that is divided, uh, in the long run, they also lose out. I mean, that's like a pretty traditional line, but uh, I think it's empirically, you know, you can you can see that, you know, the U.S. in general, the U.S. working class is not like uh, in, in a very good situation, although it is racist, you know, it's uh, racially divided. Um, but... Maybe back to the community question for us. The community one is like, yeah, it's part of maybe an identity politics problem. Uh, there's a community ideology, but it's also an interdependence. Um, for example, if, if you see also during the Arab, Arab Spring, organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, were able to build a link between, let's say, the unemployed, marginalized workers, um, unem- yeah, unemployed and, and the middle class. So there was like obviously a common ideology, but it's also material dependence. And I think uh, the situation in the US might be uh, similar in the sense that there's a dependence of, you know, inner, set, inner city, poor uh, black proletarians, and uh, let's say something like churches, uh, charities, NGOs. And the question is, how, how, do you, how do you break that dependence on, on a middle class that obviously is interested in representing this issue as a specific issue of their community. And I think the one way to open that would be to think, you know, the, the wider black experience, which is, you know, outside of uh, this binary between, you know, the middle-class leaders and the impoverished and criminalized. I mean, there are a lot of uh, workers who are, you know, black workers in manufacturing, logistics, transport, hospitals, um, you know, the wider food sector and all that. And what kind of, how can this uprising, um, yeah, develop wider material power through, you know, engaging wider, you know, class force, other working class forces. This this is a point that you make in your introduction uh, more generally, which I really liked, which is that nobody really, or like the way the working class is is, uh, often talked about, um, has really nothing to do with the working class because no one really knows what it is because... (laughs) All our experience of it or our concepts of it come from this cultural representation that's generally produced by the middle class. And even the working class itself uh, is only able to kind of understand itself and represent itself through these kinds of middle class uh, or, or like political class formations. Um, and this is why you are autonomous Marxist. This is why you think that you need to understand the class and build the class from the point of production, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a totalizing, in that sense, uh, uh, concept. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, but I think, I mean, if we see the current situation, I think you mentioned the um, insurrection and production article that, uh, or text that we wrote like, way back i think it's it seems ages ago i was only four years ago hmm. but um, i think it, it got uh, in the current situation where you've got like a covid uh, situation with the you know focus on key sectors 
or essential work um, becoming visible or becoming a, um, a public you know, discussion point. I think, yeah, um, we can discuss about the question of social transformation in a, in a different way um, compared to just four years ago. I mean, these kind of the idea that there is a kind of backbone of society that despite like a pandemic somehow managed to keep everyone, you know, warm uh, and fed uh, while at the same time being, you know, um, you know, the lowest, you know, one of the lowest paid uh, main victims of the pandemic. So this becomes like quite, you know, a public kind of fact and uh, discussions that seemed abstract that, you know, oh, we would only have to work like um, three hours a day if we would just get rid of uh, the money-making machine and all the stupid bullshit jobs, uh, all of a sudden becomes something that, you know, is empirically more evident mm -hmm. even to, you know, our co-workers, you know. So I think to have a discussion about the relationship between, you know, strikes that are still happening, I mean, I think in the U.S., there might be inflated numbers, you know, 400 wildcat strikes, a thousand strikes since uh, COVID began. Uh, but there are strikes. I mean, uh, you know, the numbers don't say much about the quality of these strikes, but there are strikes. And mm -hmm. There might be more than we know about because, like, for example, yeah. uh, the schools in New York shut down early mm -hmm. last March, and that was the result of a wildcat strike that never really – it was just all behind the scenes. It was a real threat. It was um, – there was just, just the intimation um, that uh, shop stewards within the teachers' union were thinking about striking caused the mayor's office to, to back off on some of the COVID proposals of opening the school back up. And another example is, is recently there is a coffee shop, I think in, in Williamsburg or something, that closed down. And the, the owners put a sign in the door saying basically, uh, this is the fault of Cuomo and de Blasio for, you know, uh, not taking care of businesses enough and, and putting too many COVID restrictions. And it's also the fault of the workers because the, the workers are refusing to come into work. So we need the workers to come back to work. So, so th these, this is a strike that shut down this business probably because they were, you know, uh, putting workers in unsafe conditions. But they're mm -hmm. not being filtered through this, like, leftist media or, or union infrastructure so that it's, it's counted as a strike. Yeah, interesting you say that because actually in my um, factory, when the corona lockdown happened, they obviously still had to go to work and, um, you know, because they were doing essential work and they couldn't do it from home. And obviously anything anyone could do was like eat and go to the supermarket during the lockdown. But a lot of the workers were, um, you know, over 50, had existing health conditions um, based on the fact that they were poor and they'd been working on the assembly line for like 30 years. And um, so an ambulance would like come anyway once a week. Um, so they were really scared because the, the company didn't put in any measures um, to protect any workers. Even when some workers went in with a mask, they were told they weren't allowed to wear the mask. So in response, like uh, I think it was about 40% of the whole workforce of that company in that area just refused to come to work and they just went off sick. And that wasn't a kind of coordinated action. The union didn't have anything to, to, to do with that. But, you know, how do you, you would only kind of know about that, I guess, if you were on the inside mm -hmm. and, um, you know, all of these things that workers are kind of taking control, they're important. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that the power relations um, have changed on the shop floor level when they do go back to work. You know, so that's what we're trying to kind of find out. We're doing a series of interviews at the moment with workers from lots of different sectors um, to try and find out how Corona has like affected um, workplace culture, workplace relationships and the shifts of power between management and workers. Um, because, yeah, it's evident that they are essential um, mm. and they'll be put on the front line and no one really gives a shit about them. What have you done in order to find gainful employment since your last signing on date? Fuck all! I sat around the house wanking, and I want to know why you don't serve coffee here. My signing on time's supposed to be ten past eleven. It's now twelve o'clock, and some of you strange bastards need executing. Mr. Williamson, 
your employment history looks quite impressive. I'm looking at three managerial positions you've previously held with quite reputable companies. Isn't this something you'd like to go back to? Nah, I just end up fucking robbing the place. You got a till full of 20s looking at your day? Well, I'm either gonna fucking bank it, I've got drugs to take, and a mind to break. Job seeker, can a strongbow, I'm a mess. Desperately clutching on to a leaf-long depression. Supplied to me by the NHS. It's anyone's guess how I got here. Anyone's guess how I'll go. I suck on a roll or pull your jeans off. Fuck off, I'm going home, job seeker. 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 Job seeker!